Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. And if not, well, then welcome back. The two of us have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, (laughs) we'll be discussing... (laughs) You're excited. I am excited. This movie ruined me, but I'm really excited. (laughs) Um, We're going to be discussing the 2017 gothic psychological drama, Marrowbone, a.k.a. The Secret of Marrowbone. The film was written and directed by Sergio G. Sanchez and stars George McKay, Dreamboat, Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Heaton, and Nia Goth. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can also be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Absolutely. I struggled writing this plot summary, so I'm very sorry. It's, you know, it's okay. It's, uh... This film is, it's layered like an onion. <laughs> it is, so, and it doesn't have a normal timeline. <laughs> it's an unreliable narrator, if you will. Mm. So, Rose and her four children escape England for Maine after her abusive husband goes to prison. Still fearful of their father, Rose con- comforts her children and tells them they are now going by her maiden name, Marrowbone, which... Badass maiden name. What the heck? The children, Jack, Billy, Jane, and Sam, meet a new friend named Allie, who begins a relationship with Jack. Rose falls deathly ill and begs Jack to hide her body in the garden so the children are not split up. After Rose dies, Jack finds out that she stole ten grand from their father. Which, yikes. Time passes and the Marrowbone children's worst fear comes to fruition. Their father has found them and he intends to kill them. Unless they kill him first. Thanks, Abby. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk a bit about the production of this film. So according to Lauren King, quote, After writing the scripts for two international successes, The Orphanage from 2007, which made me lose my mind crying it's so sad yep um and the impossible which i've never seen didn't even know existed Mm -hmm. um both directed by fellow spanish filmmaker juan antonio bayona sergio g sanchez knew he was ready to direct one of his own scripts marabone marks his fitting directing debut it will be familiar to fans of the gothic the orphanage yet it stretches the filmmaker by ambitiously working on the level of both ghost story and family drama and quote i was going to direct the orphanage many other scripts i'd written were going to be my first film says sanchez and then he continues saying quote it just happened that marabone got in the fast lane it had the right scale. The other scripts I sent to producers were too expensive and too complicated, unquote. Hmm. After watching this film, it's not hard to see that Sanchez is, as King puts it, an aficionado of dark fairy tales in both film and literature. You absorb stories you're exposed to, and that becomes who you are. I was always fascinated by horror films. The genre allows you to do things that straightforward drama doesn't sanchez says citing as influences uh our mother's house from 1967 directed by jack clayton the other from 1972 directed by robert mulligan and of course rosemary's baby from 1968 directed by he who must not be named (laughs) (laughs) but sanchez also took inspiration 
uh, from literature, particularly the supernatural works of American writer Shirley Jackson, one of yes. my faves. Yes. First, I read The Lottery. Then I was exposed to We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Sundial, he says. And um, we're going to talk a bit more about all of that literature and gothic stuff later. Yes. According to Meg Fields, while set in the U.S., Maribone was actually filmed in Sanchez's hometown in Spain. Relatedly, uh, the film is, according to Sanchez, very much about coming home, both in the sense of literal homecoming and the uncomfortable process of fighting for and carving out a family of one's own, unquote. And according to Kevin Nicholson, quote, one interesting fact about the making of Maribone is that the particular house and location used and time of day, no doubt, afforded Sanchez the opportunity to rely solely on natural light for filming the interiors of the home. The soft, subtle mood this creates renders an amplification of sorts for the horrors that occur in the darkened attic and outdoors. Rather like the silence just before that super-powered storm hits, unquote. Mm. In an interview with Brian Bishop, Sanchez mentions how he was scared that the ending would be too obvious, though not for the reasons we all may think. Sanchez says, quote, Jack never looks his siblings in the eye. Never. Not once in the whole movie. When we did a test screening for some friends, I was terrified about things like that. It's going to be too obvious and no and no one noticed. Or when Sam sneaks into the mother's room and covers himself with a sheet and looks in the mirror, and that's Jack the audience sees under the sheet. Of course I know actor George McKay so well that it's like, cover yourself a little bit more, a little bit a little bit more. And at the end it was just like no, you can tell it's George. You can tell it's George. But people were like, no, you can't tell it's George. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I never realized he never looked at his siblings in the eye. I, I never either. I never thought of that. Um, I also didn't realize I knew it wasn't Sam under the sheet, but I didn't realize it was actor George McKay, which makes sense. I never put two and two together. Yes, to be I, honest. it always looked like an adult under the sheet when Sam looks in the mirror, but I never thought it would be that. It's it's the same actor, which is amazing. They could he could have just used somebody else, and oh he didn't. He used George McKay, which is pretty cool. Um, hopefully, y'all have watched the film by now. But if you haven't, <laughs> slight spoiler. Whoops. Um, <laughs> according to Lauren King, quote, Sanchez says he finished shooting in the summer of 2017, but faced a relatively long editing process. We shot lots and lots of stuff. The first assembly was three hours, so I was a little worried, he says. Oh, my God. Um, I worked with editor Alina Ruiz before. She edited The Orphanage and The Impossible and two of my short films. Most of the crew are people I worked with before. It felt like a family, unquote. Aww. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in September of 2017. It was released in Spain in October of 2017, uh, and it wouldn't be released theatrically in the U.S. until April of 2018, and then in the U.K. in July of 2018. It would be released digitally in November of 2018. And the film had a budget of almost 10 million U.S. dollars, but it only made 12 million worldwide. Whoa. Yeah, it was, it flopped miserably, which is so sad. Oh my God. I think it, when it was in the U.S., it just grossed over $1,000 and that's it. What? Just in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. It's sad how terrible this movie did cuz it I feel like it's really good, but It's so good. What yeah. the fuck? Oh my god. Okay. According well. to Aya Sitsnira's quote, some might say this is a memorable plot twist in a movie. Others might say it's too easy to see coming and has done has been done in too many movies before. Either way, it speaks to the trauma that the Maribone family has been facing for a long time. The plot twist also makes it clear that they haven't really talked about their feelings or what has happened. Let's get into the discussion of today's film. So, Abby, you said that it ruined you when you watched oh, it. 
so oh, does that mean that you just kind of felt bad when you watched it or did you sob your eyes out like i did when i first saw it because i cried so hard when i first saw this movie and i cried again watch knowing what was gonna happen i cried mm -hmm. again and my cats came and sat in my lap because i was crying so hard and i was oh. just like <laughs> Oh no, 100% this movie ruined my fucking life. Like, <laughs> I put it on when I was working out on my stationary bike because I was like, oh, you know, it's going to be like a little ghost story, whatever. And I love George McKay. Like, I, I have loved him since I saw him in 1917. Oh yeah. I am like in love with his eyeballs. But <laughs> I... <laughs> by the end of the movie like i wasn't even moving on my bike i was just sitting there clutching my pearls and like sobbing into my shirt and i think i just sat there for like the last 40 minutes of the film so don't try working out while you watch it that's my <laughs> advice to you. i like, mean you i was so engrossed in this in this film and like because it's beautiful it is beautiful it is so beautiful we'll talk about it okay yes uh let's start with marabone domestic violence and uncanny realism so yeah let's <laughs> it's just so dive... beautiful it's let's so talk beautiful. about domestic let's... violence yeah <laughs> let's talk about domestic violence okay okay <laughs> uh trigger warning everybody according yes. to meg shields quote marabone has an uncanny way of evoking a tactile realism that hints at something more insidious the kind of aching sweetness and quiet terror of dried flowers white drapery and the sad genius of pet sounds at a post-screening talk bat at tiff sanchez spoke to the film's aesthetic honest to Frank to famed regionalist painter Andrew, I think it's Waith, Wyeth, Wyeth, Wyeth. Um, I, I think yeah. I think he's probably best known for painting Christina's world, and whose work, like the film, is at once grounded and unnervingly affected. Something is always off, even perhaps especially if it feels too calm. Unquote. Now, this was beautifully written by Meg, and I butchered it. I'm so sorry. Um, Meg, wherever you are, that was beautiful. And I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. And I think that that's why this film is sort of a hidden gem, because it's so gorgeous looking. Yes. And wasn't Christina's World the painting that inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes. It inspired one of the posters. Yes. Okay. Because honestly... I can see the link here. Like in both films, you aren't entirely sure what you're walking into. And it feels like a haunted house, but at the same time, it isn't because not everyone is dead yet. So yes, it is a, a beautiful and eerie painting. I saw it in person at the MoMA a few years ago. Oh, and for those who don't know what it is or can't quite picture it, I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, I'll also post it on patreon for everyone to see there so the moma's website says this about the painting um set in the stark landscape of coastal maine christina's world depicts a young woman seen from behind wearing a pink dress and lying in a grassy field although she appears to be in a position of repose her torso propped on her arms is strangely alert her silhouette is tense, almost frozen, given the impression that she is fixed to the ground. She stares at a distant farmhouse and a group of outbuildings, ancient and grayed in harmony with the dry grass and overcast sky, unquote. Great description, MoMA. Great mm -hmm. description of this painting. Um, yes. And if you're not aware of the real life, Christina, that Wyeth painted in this painting you might think that the way she's sitting down is like maybe she's scared of something like they said that she seems like weirdly alert yet she's laying on the grass so it's like she's unable to move but she's still like tr trying to see something maybe that's really far away mm -hmm. and it's kind of a frightening picture it's kind of a frightening painting i'm not gonna lie it's really uncanny it makes you feel unsettled and even though it's really beautiful looking it is like unsettling in a way it makes me 
think of like all the old timey cases of like family annihilators. Like there's one in particular of a father who like shot his entire family. And there was, I think he had like an older son or daughter, which he like let go at the last minute. And that's what it reminds me of. Like she's, she's looking at a farmhouse where something awful is happening so it's like well that's kind of what happens in this movie isn't it so the real christina i think her last name was olsen don't quote me on that but she had um some sort of muscle issues um they think it might have been polio so she really was like unable to move wow but if you don't know that then you look at this painting you're like why does she look like that you know it's a little strange yeah yeah and you can really interpret anything in it Mm. so according to eric hatala matthias uh for their essay are we living in a horror movie quote the philosopher cynthia freeland offers a set of powerful tools for understanding this phenomenon in her paper realist horror she explores the distinctive features of those horror movies that eschew impossible monsters and supernatural forces for the fears we find closer to home. In particular, she identifies two features of realist horror that might help us explain how people can take such different perspectives on our current political moment. The fascination of the realistic monster and the foregrounding of the spectacle over plot." Now, Freeland was, from my understanding, um, very much against the horror genre and felt like it glamorized the villains. Um, But I think that Marabone is an interesting example of, like, the pure, real horror of patriarchal domestic violence. And I don't feel like there's any glamorization glamorization of the father in this at all. I mean, it's non-existent. So I think this is, like, a great example of that not not being a realist horror but not glamorizing the villain correct but the other part of this is that i think unfortunately for a lot of people their first taste of horror is domestic violence so um according to recent statistics from the national domestic abuse hotline over one in three women that's 35.6 percent and one in four men which is 28.5 percent in the u.s have experienced rape physical violence uh or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime that's pretty wild yeah yeah that is a staggering number so you can imagine that back in the times that this film takes place which isn't it like early 60s i want to say i think so because i think the well pet sounds trying to think it looks like the 60s yeah yeah i would be willing to bet that those statistics were either about the same or worse because (laughs) the resources didn't exist that we have today and domestic abuse wasn't really openly talked about um i mean it still isn't and that's part of the real monstrousness that lends to the horror that you know the taboo itself becomes this looming darkness and it just it's so foreboding Mm -hmm. it's it's like a blanket that falls over everything so the maravone family escapes their abusive father initially but the fact that he is still out there like he's a presence in the world and it speaks to the attack that kind of besieges our nervous systems when we think of things that initiate our fight or flight so these monsters even though they are fictional like in in stories like this they are the stuff of lore they're mm-hmm. you know where we get horror stories from but right. they are also tangible people so it's like where does the fantasy begin and end and when it comes to domestic violence there is no separation between our fears and our reality like that's just what life is so hmm. it, it's awful it is um, I mean, I think it's no coincidence that their abusive and murderous dad ends up in the attic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
Dr. Mark Fryer says, quote, the trope of something in the attic has a more sinister association with everyday horror, with the image of the tragic attic-bound Anne Frank serving as an indexical link between the domestic everyday and the almost unimaginable horrors of the Holocaust, unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and this association with gothic tropes and realism creates I think some of the more heartfelt and devastating horror stories in cinema, uh, according to James Guild, quote, Maribone is a gothic horror story. Yes, it has ghosts and murders and creepy things afoot in the attic, but the horror of this film is not derived from the traditional language of scary movies. It is instead an intensely psychological film drawing on how the ghosts of the past become trapped in the mind and rot and corrupt it with guilt and fear and sorrow. These are all classic gothic tropes right down to the decaying old house that functions as a metaphor for the confused, ravaged, ravaged labyrinth of a human mind, unquote. Mm-hmm. And speaking of gothic tropes, let's talk some more about them. Uh, Maribone and the Gothic Fairy Tale. One of the reasons why I love Maribone so much is its shamelessness with how gothic it is. It is absolutely loaded with tropes, and I am here for it. That is, like, my jam. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Bree Dorley, quote, Unlike many haunted house movies where the physical home serves only as props to violence and action, the Maribone estate moors itself into the fabric of the family. One could say, bone deep. initially the house appears frozen in time and this illusion directly affects the marabone kids as they escape reality with adventures and otherworldly acts of heroism on the shores and in the fairy gardens of the property unquote so the gothic and fairy tales have a deep connection and this is something that we have discussed a lot on our show And I think most Spanish and Mexican films like Maribone do this really well. Um, Pan's Labyrinth and Tigers Are Not Afraid, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, The magical escapism the main characters must use in order to survive is so bittersweet. And according to FolkHorrorRival.com, quote, This film does have the feel of Spanish classics such as The Devil's Backbone and Spirit of the Beehive, the sense of childhood sentimentality with a bitter undertaste of something strange, perhaps sinister, unquote. Mm, I, I do feel like other cultures do this really well because they have been around for so long. Like, America has only existed as a small blip on the earth's radar really when you think about it but when you have a cultural background that incorporates fairy tales into the learning process you get really deep and rich stories Mm. and like america has its own fairy tales sure but those often stem from kind of the conglomeration of so many different backgrounds so we get stories like Marrowbone when we kind of meet in the middle of it all because we have a collective and it's a very human understanding of suffering. Yeah, and we, we mentioned a bit about the attic trope earlier, so <laughs> let's explore that some more here. Um, we'll be exploring that a lot, actually. Yeah. According to C.M. Rosen's quote, in many ways, attics are the oubliette of the creepy old house, a place for the owners to discard and hide things they'd rather forget about. But they conversely act as the house's memory, too. After all, all those old boxes and objects and mummified remains, inconvenient (sighs) spouses, and concealed incestuous children haven't vanished off the face of the earth. The house knows they're there and preserves them, unquote. And quote, the attic can reflect one's subconscious, and haunted attics might, may symbolize hidden memories and suppressed desires bubbling to the surface, unquote. Rosen then continues saying, quote, if the attic is where we hide our repressed selves, the bits of our souls we don't want to think about or the memories we don't want to admit are there, then it makes sense that when we hide people or entities in addicts, they act in transgressive ways, unquote. Mm, Yes, I'll talk about this more in our next topic, but I also have a theory about why the trauma kind of happens in the attic, and it has a lot to do with the brain and the way Jack's psyche is 
shattered. Ooh, I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> so another gothic trope that's implied is uh, incest. <laughs> um, yeah. According to thegothiclibrary.com, quote, exactly what is considered taboo varies from culture to culture and changes over time. But one of the strongest taboos that you'll find in almost every culture, although often defined differently, is that of incest. Um, sexual relations between family members are in many places prohibited by law and by religious code, in addition to being against social custom. But perhaps more so than any other crime, incest has the tendency to arouse strong feelings of disgust and discomfort. Mm -hmm. It is precisely these emotions, along with shock and horror, that writers of gothic literature have sought to induce by including incest in their fiction, unquote. So we talked a bit more about this trope when we discussed Del Toro's Crimson Peak. It is a very common gothic trope. Um, and um, we do see it here in Maribone as well, though not as straightforward. Instead, it is heavily implied that Jane was raped by her father and that Sam is the product of that rape. And Rose even says something like, Jane can be Sam's mother now after I'm gone, like it was meant to be or something. And the newspaper clippings of the trial, they show like headlines of the father and headlines are saying like he had abused Jane at one point. Uh, yeah. To me, this kind of harkens back to like royal bloodlines and mm. how often they committed incest to keep their bloodlines pure so right. it's almost as if their father is so selfish and such a fucking awful person <laughs> that he cannot imagine sharing dna with outsiders like he wants to keep everything contained within which really seals his fate considering that you know he's forced to be contained within the attic after committing his atrocities so mm. it's like he becomes a prisoner of his own making and his own flesh and blood end up being the ones containing him right or he's just a rapist <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's just a fucking garbage human being Ugh. Yeah, that when I kind of realized that, I was like, oh, snap. Like, that is like, it is. It's disgusting and it's, it's sad. Fucking gross. Poor yeah. Jane and Sam and this whole family. Oh, I know. Another popular trope that's seen in this film and might also be the reason why people ended up not liking the film is its use of quote unquote madness. Um, According to thegothiclibrary.com, quote, madness is the monster that lurks inside our own minds. And in some ways, it is the most terrifying monster of all. It is intangibility. Its intangibility means that it cannot be fought and its irrational nature makes it nearly impossible to understand. Perhaps this is why insanity crops up as one of the most common themes in gothic literature. I present it in this post as one trope, but madness is explored in many different ways in both the victims and villains of gothic literature. And the way it is presented has changed over time. And, quote, H.P. Lovecraft builds on Poe's tradition of mad narrators. Almost all of his short stories end with the protagonist slowly devolving into insanity as he discovers horrors beyond his comprehension, unquote. Yeah, I, well, it's also a way to explain something we don't yet grasp or understand. Like, it, in this film, it's really meta because <laughs> Jack uses this narrative to try and explain why he is the way he is currently like he covers the trauma with a fairy tale right and he weaves a yarn that expresses the trouble he and his family have gone through and how they came to be mm -hmm. as well so this sort of like fairy tale approach also takes the realness out of it in many ways as a way to maybe buffer the sadness or traumatic memories that jack holds inside right and maybe this madness isn't the PC term that we should use, right? But <laughs> right. that's it. But that is that is the trope. Yeah. Um, and you especially, Abby, you're going to talk more about this in our next topic here. Um, DID and the domestic homebound male in Maribone. So Dr. Mark Fryer says, quote, 
Marabone exemplifies a trope that has become an active model within the gothic and horror film since the mid-20th century, the lone male figure enclosed within the spaces of the domestic realm, observing the women and children in his absence from afar, on a periphery of society and haunting the spaces of the family home, hidden in attics, basements, and crawl spaces, the domestically sutured male at once supports the male gaze, but is at the same time disenfranchised from and on the borders of the society that supposedly promotes the same gaze, unquote. Um, now, this could be the father in the attic. Um, but you could also kind of use this description with Jack, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Yes, he's not hidden in the attic like the father is, but he is observing the fake versions of his family, <laughs> like walking around because he sees them in his mind. And mm-hmm. um, it's weird because it's almost like he and the dad are sort of both trapped in this they're both trapped together yeah so i just thought it was really interesting that i think mark fryers is talking about the father but you could easily put jack in this description as well yeah according to Bree dorley quote jack becomes one with the estate gardening buying supplies keeping up with the lives of his dead siblings at home and upkeeping appearances with the town locals especially Allie. normacy is key to stretching out the mystery and keeping the quote-unquote ghost at bay this introspection into jack's solitary lifestyle never leaves room to imagine that his loneliness included such tremendous shock and sorrow in many horrors there's either an attack of the senses a jump scare or a stark image of gore and blood to symbolize one's psychological hauntings but anxious energy exudes within each recollection of jack's fatal choices enacted in the name of the family and heroism the horror lies in the truth. Jack feels failure to Rose and the untenable grief leaves Jack just as empty as his home, unquote. And quote, moving in rhythm with Jack's anxiety, stress, isolation, trauma, and emptiness, the house crumbles with each haunting incident. And this madness lingers to almost the very end, unquote. While Brian Bishop notes, quote, there's a lot to unpack in this movie, especially about denial and mental illness. Jack has written a book to help him forget what happened to his family, which touches upon the idea of using storytelling to cope with grief and tragedy, unquote. I think that um, I, I, I do want to add that mental health representation has not always been great in horror movies, as we know, but we'll talk more about that in a second, Abby the lady with the psych degree please <laughs> take it from here so i can deal with my cat at my door <laughs> oh my god Alrighty. so a few things um we've talked before about the haunted home and how it's a reflection of us or how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy but like we mentioned with the home and the family there is no separation between the family and the house and most of all jack So there's this idea about protecting the home that starts very early on in the film when Rose hands down the responsibility of looking after the family to Jack. Um, She's sort of passing the torch, but instead of letting the terror in like his mother did, and that's not to victim blame, it's just Jack sees what it is and decides not to go down that route either. Um... Jack does everything he can to sort of fortify the house and himself by keeping everyone and everything out, but also contained within. So this is the only way that he can imagine to keep his whole family safe. Now, a lot of the trauma happens outside of the home at first, but things seem to be functioning well until after their father comes back and he is the outside force trying to penetrate the protection of the home. So Jack springs into action by trying to deal with the issue through leading the attacker away from the home, but he is unsuccessful and 
his protected home becomes infiltrated by his abuser. And this is the trauma that compounds everything, leading to the shattering of his consciousness. And I believe that Jack has succumbed to dissociative identity disorder or, you know, what we popularly know as split personality disorder, which is not really a term that we use anymore um, just because, you know, colloquially it's not it's not an awesome term. So um, according to the Dissociative Identity Research Organization, DID is formed in childhood due to repeated trauma in early childhood, so before age 10, before the personality is fully integrated. So to block out unpleasant memories, the brain creates amnesia walls as an extreme form of defense mechanism. And this results in a fragmented personality, quote-unquote, or what is known as alters. So in DID, alters are created unconsciously as a way for the brain to cope with trauma, and typically it has characteristics deemed desirable to keep one safe. So each alter holds a different memory or role and meaning within the system. And these alters can have different ages, gender, names, and perceived appearance. So each alter could also have different preferences and outlooks on life. Interestingly, researchers have found that these differences extend way beyond the mental states, presenting in observable biological responses like heart rate and blood pressure and brain activity and even health conditions such as vision and diabetes. So in short, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Alters can be thought of as any completely functioning individual separate from other alters within the system. So they are, to the person who is experiencing it, very much real. To the point where it has physiological effects on their own body. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, so not only does this lend to an absolutely incredible twist in the story... We come back to the thought that the most frightening and tragic parts of this film are absolutely rooted in nonfiction. Like, these kinds of things happen, and they happen to protect us. So, something really important that I'd also like to point out is this really, really crucial message from that same article that I was just referencing. And the author says that individuals with dissociative identity disorder are highly likely to have other comorbid mental health conditions such as post-traumatic disorder, depression, anxiety, or even eating disorders. So they reiterate that DID is a mental health condition that develops due to trauma. Mm. And dissociate- it doesn't just show up right randomly there's a reason why maybe somebody would have it right like gotcha. like nine times out of ten you're not born with did something happens to mm. you so do, diso- do we know if it's inherited at all now i'm like super curious you know what that's a really good question i don't have the answer to that because i don't know what it like I really don't know the genetics behind it. Sure. I know that things like schizophrenia are inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, schizophrenia is not the same as DID. But I think, according to the research, it's mostly something that is caused by trauma. So you don't. It doesn't just like pop up out of nowhere. I wonder if probably, like most things that co- that come with mental health, um, you're probably at a higher risk. If someone in your family already has it. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's just like sort of like the broad diagnosis of that is that if it's in your family, you, it's a probably a better chance that you're also going to have it. Trauma. Correct. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe if you go through trauma, you're more likely to have DID if someone else in your family has it. But that's, that is just my armchair analysis of that. <laughs> I have no clue. I think it's really interesting though. It is. The author goes on to say that dissociation is a form of playing dead, Mm. which only happens when the fight, flight, and freeze response fails to keep us safe. And that recovery from DID does not necessarily mean integrating all existing alters into a full personality once again, but rather 
establishing clear communication and boundaries where all alters can manage or function as a whole. Hmm. That being said, how I interpret this when it comes to this film is that Jack could not keep his family guarded when they were outside of his body. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of giving them a chance at life within himself, which <laughs> is so motherly of him. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the ultimate forms of maybe not domesticity. It's That's not the right word, but it's a form of sacrifice because he is literally giving his body to them, whether he likes it or not. Like, unfortunately, sometimes your your brain doesn't like to always coexist with your body. <laughs> <laughs> in a kosher way. So mm. to kind of also tie this back to the whole attic trope, if you look at it from the perspective of Jack actually being the house, the trauma that happens in the attic is happening in his brain. Like right. if you if you look at his body as the house, he is holding all of those memories and all of that trauma. They're trapped in his mind they can't get out right and the mirrors i think is interesting because it's like he he doesn't want to see that he's actually alone you know yes. he doesn't want to see that it's actually just him in the mirror like we yes. mentioned earlier um it's not sam it's him in the mirror and um it frightens him to be exactly that he's alone that he's taking care of this house all by himself yeah yeah and it's not until the end when he allows someone to come into the house he allows Allie to come be there and like make space and he makes space for her in his in his home and in his mind so yeah exactly yeah that's a really great look at did in this film abby um i know a lot of viewers with mental health disorders not unlike ourselves um don't always mind the way mental health is regarded in horror but i know there are many others who aren't fans of it like at all mm. evan j peterson writes quote our genre horror isn't known for its warm and compassionate embrace of disability from physical disfigurement to mental illness those with disabilities are an all too convenient other to demonize the current battle for greater inclusion in the genres continues to shed light on those stories and voices that have been excluded uh, as we look beyond race gender and sexuality for inclusion and representation ability is vital for us to re-examine unquote Mm -hmm. Peterson continues saying, quote, many of our villains and some protagonists are quote unquote crazy. This is a catch all term for anyone whose personal reality doesn't match the traditional or popular definition of reality. And they're usually extreme. Maybe they hallucinate like in Videodrome. Maybe they're delusional and at times believe themselves to be another person entirely. Of course, that seems ableist to say delusional. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, Psycho and Friday the 13th. Um, maybe they just think murder is fun, unquote. Um, Peterson does say, quote, mental illness, on the other hand, currently includes everything from depression and anxiety to drug and alcohol addiction to schizophrenia. It's clear that most, indeed most, of 20th century horror film and fiction had no idea what schizophrenia actually is, often confusing it with DID. Mm -hmm. um, schizophrenic people are rarely a mortal threat to anyone but themselves, if even. Those with DID are no more likely to kill than anyone else. The idea of a bloodthirsty killer tucked into the fragmented psyche of a mild-mannered neighbor is at least as old as the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1886. It's much older if you include legends of werewolves and other predatory shapeshifters, unquote. Yes. Now, that... This is what makes this movie a little bit different in my eyes, though, because... Jack uses, I'm going to laugh because I thought it was funny when I wrote this. Jack uses his mental illness for good. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to every millennial ever. <laughs> um, he isn't the villain of the story. It's the dad, which is like, it's a step up in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. but I can still see why some people don't like it and don't feel like it's a it's great representation because it feels like a superpower rather than like an actual mental illness yeah 
As Maura Allen Meals writes, quote, mental illness is not in itself a redemption story or a superpower. How we manage mental illness can become one, but there are a lot of bumps in the road and cruelties to navigate, unquote. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like I, this is something that I've been thinking of lately and maybe nobody will agree with me and that's totally fine. Maybe I'm very wrong. Like it's okay to be afraid of having a mental illness yes because health anxiety is very real and is in itself a mental illness and i think a lot of us especially after covid do have health anxieties physical and mental and i think that it is okay to be scared of not understanding what is going on in your brain Mm -hmm. and i think that horror movies especially horror movies where the the hero or the main protagonist like jack has did obviously um i think sometimes it's okay to see that fear or that uh yeah that anxiety projected onto the screen and 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 feeling that in a safe space yeah so i think sometimes even and then even when villains have like a personality disorder is it great representation absolutely not but sometimes it feels good as a viewer who has health anxieties to see all of that played out on screen in a safe environment where you can be entertained again it's not good representation but to play devil's advocate, I think sometimes it helps to see mental illness played in such an exploitive way on screen just for that. But that's probably a very, very unpopular opinion. <laughs> well, no. And it ties in really well with our final thought. But I just want to say, too, um, those feelings need to be normalized a little bit more and right i don't feel like we should gatekeep people's anxieties towards mental health either like i I think it's okay to be upset that or afraid that you might have depression or or did you know i think it that is okay to feel those feelings and sometimes you need those feelings to be shown on screen to you in an entertaining way you know yeah and you don't have to be like one of the things that we struggle with in the mental health field is that there isn't really a lot of neutrality that people experience about their mental health or their mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's not like you go to somebody and you say, I have clinical depression and it will never go away. And they're like, oh, it's okay. Like, it's so normal. Like, everybody has it. Everybody experiences depression and like everybody is on antidepressants like you don't have to be happy about that as luke says uh he goes you walk up to somebody like hi what's your mental illness yes (laughs) hi i'm gracie i have depression what's your mental illness (laughs) yes it's so true because it's like oh fuck like it's not fair it's not fair when it happens to us because very rarely do we ask for a mental illness (laughs) No, I don't know of anyone who is like, you know what, I would absolutely love to have schizophrenia and experience auditory hallucinations all day long. I would love that. Right. Like, no, I have never worked with anyone who has been super stoked about it. So it's like these are this is a very real part of mental illness. Now, in order to get past the stigmas i think we have to look at it a little bit more realistically but it would also be a lie to say that a lot of people who don't get the mental health help that they need they very easily slip into villainhood because they turn to things that you know are a quick fix or that make them feel better because maybe they're going through something that they don't understand and they don't have people reaching out to to give them the help or they don't bother to reach out themselves yeah i very recently had to reach out to you because i was feeling um 
oh, hopeless. <laughs> right. I can laugh now because I feel fine now. But at the time I was like not in a good place. And I thought I can let this linger or I can text one of my best friends and um, tell her how I'm feeling and get the encouragement that I need to feel better. And it does help to talk about it and to say, right. I'm not doing well. I need you, you know? Yes, absolutely. So. Some people just don't have that in them, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, you know, it can lead to a lot of really negative things in their life and it can affect their loved ones and, you know, things like that. Do I think that people are always going to turn to murder because of their mental illness? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> no. There's no distinction between the disorders. So we, like we were just talking about, we tend to group people with schizophrenia and people with DID into these groups that like they're going to hurt other people. They're not. No, they're more likely to be victims. Yeah. So there just needs to be, I think, a better dissemination of knowledge <laughs> when it comes to certain disorders and what they mean for people. But right, because I think the fear of having a mental disorder and mental illness is valid um yes. but i but i think you're right i think you summed it up really well but if we know that there is help and there and this is this is actually what the mental illness looks like you're not gonna go around murdering people yes. you know i think if we know that then seeing it on screen the exploitation part of it on screen um works more as like a way to make us feel better than it does in a way that hinders how others neurotypical people um neuro healthy people how they look at the illness exactly so hmm. that actually like i just mentioned plays really well into our final thought which is trauma and this sort of blissful ignorance after tragedy so when we get through all of the really awful shit that happens in this film, we come to, in my opinion, a pretty lovely ending, or as lovely as it can be. Because, you know, Allie stays to care for Jack, and she sort of decides not to make him, like, take the meds that his doctors suggest so that he can be happy sort of believing that his siblings are still with him and after everything that he's been through it seems like Allie is doing this from a place of love and since re-watching the film I've thought about this quite a bit and right because we've always said take your meds yes drink, drink water and take your meds you yes. know yes 100 percent my question is and this is not I think it's not like a, a broad question. Every situation needs to be looked at differently. But if this was you and you were in Allie's position, would you allow your loved one to remain blissfully ignorant? Or would you sort of work with them to get through the tragedy so that they can live, you know, sort of like some sort of life without these hallucinations of these dead relatives that they have? Like, I have an answer. Mm -hmm. I would still make my loved one take the medicine. Mm. And I would do this because this ending is absolutely beautiful. It is sad and sweet, but it's not real. It's a movie. It's a movie ending. Mm -hmm. It's a movie ending where the guy doesn't get the help that he needs. <laughs> <laughs> And just believes that his siblings are still with him so he can see them because he has been through a lot of trauma. But I think in the real world, I think that it is a, a very important to take care of yourself and to take care of, and by taking care of yourself, you're taking care of everyone around you as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, th I think that's my cold hearted answer <laughs> because the world is a cold place. <laughs> And we don't, we don't get that, you know? I mean, yes, the movie, if that happened in the movie, that would suck. I'd be like, that is a sucky ending of a movie. <laughs> but 
if but it's it, but it's a movie so i want him to be able to enjoy his his dead siblings you know yeah but i just but i think in real life we have to take care of ourselves we have to we have to listen to doctors <laughs> but but that's again that's my very cold-hearted answer <laughs> No, I don't. I actually, I do not think it's cold hearted at all because my other thought was like, Jack does not have the best of luck when it comes to his loved ones. And what if something happens to Allie? <laughs> I mean, you know what that's I mean? That's what I mean. You got to take care of yourself so you can take care of everyone else around you. That's true. That's true. It's sad that his siblings are gone, but death is inevitable. And it, I feel like we aren't really healing if we don't come to terms with what we've just faced, you know? Right. And I'm not saying people with DID have not come to terms with what they've dealt with. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying that it's all intentional, you know, obviously. But it's like, I think we need to, I, I know it's tough. I think I think escapism is important, obviously, mm-hmm. but that's why we have movies and books and video games. We have ways to escape. We have safe places to feel the, the things, and I think we need to use the. I guess then it's like, well, then what's really reality? We're getting into a whole philosophical thing here, and I guess now, but <laughs> I think it's important for us to to really live yeah. because. If we're not living, then we're just as good as dead, right? So Yeah. It sort of reminds me of people who have to go through, like, the stories that you would hear of people, like, post-lobotomy, where they were alive, but also not really alive, because what they perceive as reality is not really what's happening, or, like, the environment around them isn't really what they're interacting with in a way so in a in a way i feel like it's kind of cruel to jack to let him go on believing these things because you know do these personalities or these alters within himself do they change and age and get older as he does i know we don't know Do they pass away at any point like what happens when he passes away, like there are just so many questions that you could sit here and ponder about this film, which is why I'm so mad that it didn't do so well. <laughs> All right. I got Sam with me. I think his daddy fell asleep on the couch while I was up here recording. Oh, no. Can you say hi? Are you singing into the microphone? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness life life of having a little a little child i know uh, yeah oh how my gosh Ooh, how you doing did you miss me whoa whoa it's so pretty it is so pretty huh <laughs> all right can want to end the show with mommy sure. yeah want to end the show end the show okay we can do that all right, everyone. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Um, sorry for Nancy having to... Nightingale. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy Nightingale. Oh, that's right. Nancy Nightingale is a character on a show he watches, so that's kind of oh! funny. He's like, Nancy Nightingale? Oh, my gosh. And now my cat's in here, too. Hi, Pluto. It's a party! This is... Oh, my gosh. Don't eat the wire. This is a great ending to the show. I love it. <laughs> Um, sorry we had to skip December's episode as oh, it was a rough month filled with lots of holiday gatherings and lots of coughing and lost voices. But yes. anyway, thank thanks for being here. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our return back. Um, sh- black and orange. That's right. Black and orange. That's what those colors are. There you go. <laughs> um, shout out to Nadia Maraga for always helping us out with uh the show and research and this episode in particular she is amazing and we are incredibly grateful for her and always thank you to our patrons you guys are the best 
Yes, and as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on social media over at Instagram at Good Morning Nancy. Reposting our content really helps others find our show and also word of mouth. So tell your friends and spread the word. <laughs> spread the word. What are you saying, Sam? What is it? It's a computer. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. Say bye. Can you say bye? Bye. He's like, what am I saying bye to? (laughs) He's like, this is weird. He's like, I just got here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I just got here.